Hello, everyone. I am John McDonald, stalwart American playwright, um, slightly traumatized by the direction of my country. And today I'm with Magnus, whose country is no longer being, well, I guess you're still being traumatized by Boris Johnson for a little bit yet. <laughs> but soon you'll be traumatized by someone completely different. Oh, yes. Well, we're going to be traumatized by another party election campaign, which is currently ongoing as the collection of the bad bunch try and convince each other which is the best fruit to go for but uh oh good but, uh, yeah here yeah. in america politics never ends um like you never get a break from it so i hope you enjoy that american experience and i hope <laughs> you also enjoy the american experience of the 1988 seminal classic mm. beetlejuice which is the film we're going to be talking about today which might be one of which might be my favorite Burton film actually. It was really hard to pick one, but when I think about Burton films that I watch over and over again, I think if Beetlejuice is not the top spot, it might be like the second. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I'd heard about it for years, but it was only until I watched it with my behalf some time ago that I really experienced it fully for myself, and I could see why it captured the imagination of the watcher so clearly. Um, it made like it, 75 million in 1988, which is not a small sum of money. And it made it on a $15 million budget mm -hmm. with only a million of that being for visual effects. So all of the campiness, all of kind of that B-movie look, that was actually something they were going for. So it's actually supposed to look like it looks, which makes me mm -hmm. so happy. It made it before the era of the tentpole. Uh, film projects, really. I mean, Hollywood has always had like the big pictures coming out. Um, usually, like the traditional summer blockbuster, which is now sort of turned into the all-year-round blockbusters. Um, but um, like but back then, there wasn't um, so much like a constant thing for it. So it made it like before on. I'd almost say, but it looks a bit word of mouth, and just because it touched a particular essence of the of the of the traditional American vision, um, because at, at a very basic level, Beetlejuice taps into the sort of counterculture American ideal. Um, yeah, well, it's filmed, um, it was filmed, and I actually think the town where it is, is in is in Connecticut. Mm. Um, so it definitely has like that Stepford Wives um, kind of vibe where it's like the mm. the dirt world underneath that shiny surface thing. Mm. Um, so it has that Witches of Eastwick vibe as well, where there's all these people mm. that want this certain life. They can't have, it's different than that because it's very insular. It's very much about the house and not about the community, but like yeah. Connecticut as an Americana place evokes like Beetlejuice in New Mexico is a completely different movie. Uh, mm. You know, Beetlejuice in Connecticut is this thing. Um, and the reason it mm. wasn't a tentpole and why Batman was Tim Burns' first tentpole um, summer blockbuster film was because this was only the third or this was only the third movie with him really having any mm. kind of credit. And he originally worked for Disney. And so most of the stuff <laughs> that most of Tim Burton's stuff we don't see because the one movie he made for Disney with his name on it, uh, before they fired him, they only showed once in 1983 anyways. 
but it was mm. why Paul Rubens hired him to do stuff for uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, which mm. is how he ended up getting this. There's there's this like ladder of steps that Tim Burton went on. Um, it, it's quite the journey if you like put together the Beetlejuice wiki with the Geffen film wiki with Tim's wiki. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole journey he took to get to Beetlejuice, which is pre Edward Scissorhands, pre Batman, you know, mm-hmm. pre what we think of as like that Tim Burton esque film. Like people didn't really understand Tim Burton probably until Beetlejuice, but it's a very accessible film, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So would you almost say that Beetlejuice was almost a sort of young, undiluted Tim Burton, in a sense? Like, this was a film that was really capturing the essence of his creativity and almost like a, um, like an example of what he could achieve if he was at the helm. Well, I don't think, I don't think his films, I think his films have gotten Hollywoodized over time. And mm. because he has such a heavy style, it's kind of like Wes Anderson, where you almost have to end up making fun of it because it goes so far into style. Sometimes mm-hmm. you lose substance. Um, but the project that got him fired, ironically, Disney brought back to life, uh, Frankenweenie. Um, mm. So there was a Frankenweenie movie they fired him for because he had been working on, um, if you watch Waking Sleeping Beauty, there's actually like a still of Tim Burton. Like they have a 10 second like, here's Tim Burton animating The Black Cauldron, which was, like, <laughs> a movie uh, a movie failure for the Disney company. And and so they didn't like, they thought Frankenweenie was too dark. He did this Japanese-style Hansel and Gretel kung fu movie that is apparently amazing <laughs> and has only been seen, like, okay. 10 people. And then he got fired by Disney. Um, but Paul Rubens, whose Pee Wee Herman character comes from the Groundlings, which is also, I think, where Captain Hera comes from, and a whole Mm. bunch of Christopher Guest people, and a whole bunch of SNL people. Like, Paul Rubens saw something Tim Burton did and was like, no, this guy gets it. If I I do, Mm. if I take my, like, weird little kid TV show and make a movie, like, this is the guy. And, And so it's like, you can't really dilute because there's always been a weirdness and an awareness of mm. like the Tim Burton brand, uh, even when he's doing musical theater, which is what Nightmare Before Christmas is. Mm. Um, except for maybe the Alice movies, I can't really think that his brand has been diluted too much. The Alice movies push it a little too Hollywood, I think, which is why they get critique heaviest of his work. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I can see that. And I enjoyed seeing the Alice movies for what they were at the time, but I'll admit that afterwards, and they're not the Burton movies that I'd go back for a rewatch necessarily. Not when, dare I say, there's a lot of other ones competing. Um, yeah. As you say, like um, Beetlejuice, Edward Scissorhands, um, The Corpse Bride. Both of his Batman are, I think Batman Returns, when people think of Batman, if they don't think of Joel Schumacher's Batnipple fiasco, sadly, which I have a lot of feelings on, we get there, we'll talk about it. But like, there's something about Keaton as Beetlejuice in this kind of gross perverted way instead of the creepy way they were going to make him be. There's something about Lydia Dietz that really especially people resonate with. Um, and there's something about mm-hmm. Catherine O'Hara, the queer coding of Otto, 
Um, he may be openly queer. I'm not actually sure if he's openly queer in this film, but there's something about the way this film is constructed where different segments of the population kind of glom onto things. And mm. so it works on a variety of levels, the same way that Nightmare works, except Beetlejuice didn't have a resurgence Beetlejuice was always just very popular. Nightmare went through a period where nobody liked it, and then all of a sudden Hot Topic found it, and mm. it came back big style. But Beetlejuice was a critical and commercial success darling, and it was the reason he got to make Batman, essentially. Mm. I mean, it got to the point where it had its own very odd um, animated cartoon series. for Which was uh, produced by the same company that made the movie. The Geffen uh, Film Company actually was in charge of this. Uh, so the Beetlejuice com- uh, cartoon, too, was created for ABC, and the last season was aired <laughs> on Fox, but it was not a Fox cartoon. It was an ABC cartoon. Um, actually, oh. uh, the, Geffen, the Geffen Film Company uh, also produced The Little Shop of Horrors in 86, two years before this. Um, and then in 94, did Interview with Vampire. And then in 96, they kind of crash land with Joe's Apartment, which is a film that I think four people, including me, saw about this apart- apartment with living cockroaches in it, where they like sing and talk and things like that. But yeah, um, Geffen also produced the Tales from the Crypt TV show and the Beetlejuice cartoon. Um, are there two TV credits? So they they get the brand. They get horror comedy as a brand, which is not something you get a lot of in America. Um, I was making a list, and it's not a very long list of the horror comedies I can think of off the top of my head. So mm. uh, Beetlejuice is definitely up there in um, comedy horror film dumb. Yes, I think yeah. The range that you've mentioned of films and productions and such, it they in a sense they're all from the overarching um, subversive counterculture element of. Yeah. Uh, Geffen uh, Geffen mm-hmm. Film Companies also did one of their last films. They did that they uh, most of the movies that that Geffen did uh, before they folded are owned by Warner Brothers, but yeah. Beavis and Butthead do America. Uh, is owned by uh, Paramount, which is why they did the Beavis and Butthead do the universe film that nobody I uh, nobody I know saw or even enjoyed for the one person that kind of saw that I kind of knew. Uh, but I, yeah, but so they they have a brand. Uh, Geffen mm-hmm. definitely had a brand. So Beavis and Butthead are very much Marmite in my opinion. Um, I enjoyed a little bit of it in the past, but uh, it's a very I can see what they're doing with Beavis and Butthead, and it is important to have such a great, um, I'm not sure how to describe what Beavis and Butthead is. I know what it is. Yeah. Um, almost like a great argument and satire of American ideals. Um, it's important to have that, but it's sometimes difficult to sit down and watch it uh, properly just yeah. because it's, um, <laughs> it is well, what it is. Back and this was much later. This was much later than what they'd done. Now in '88, when Beetlejuice came out, um, this was called a comedy and a fantasy. It wasn't really called a horror film. Uh, but in '88, there was a lot of fantasy comedy stuff going on. Um, yes. The the kind of the movies that were of the period were films like Heather's um, and Willow, which is kind of a dark 
fantasy almost i i consider willow almost kind of uh, a critique of the fantasy genre in some ways like mm-hmm. it's like it's straight like it like it has like a straight fantasy feel but i feel like it was made sort of as a critique too um and then mm-hmm. so you get heathers you get cocktail um even die hard which is really an action movie still kind of feels like like a fantasy movie so beetlejuice is in pretty good company in 88 with what the public was kind of used to seeing yes. and wanted to see mm. the 80s and 90s were a really good time for yeah. lots of the classic um fantasy fair as you say on a small minor note um in the places that I did some research for these just before we started um, this podcast this evening, I was really surprised that a lot of, of um, places call it a fantasy comedy rather than a dark fantasy comedy because it is quite you know dark yeah. and very morbid in its um, themes and such. It doesn't. I think they handle it in the good way that it doesn't feel depressing. In yeah, its it, it, it's more Scooby-Doo than Blair Witch Project, that's for sure. <laughs> yes. um, and it was done, it was actually done with the intent of being, so it was originally written, mm-hmm. the screenplay for Beetlejuice was this almost horrific, violent, somewhat like Annabelle Sinister type thing going on. Ooh. Like uh, poor, poor Gina Davis was like supposed to be brutally murdered in the car, in the car accident oh, in the beginning uh like mm. it looked like beetlejuice was supposed to like dig himself out of his own grave and and he didn't need to marry anyone he just had to have carnal relations with them like <laughs> there was like a creepy young sister character that basically does everything lydia does in the movie um and, and so the transition from like real horror to comedy if this had been that original horror script which you can actually see on um uh, on the Wikipedia page, they describe kind of the changes. Mm. It really only has uh, They Live um, instead of like Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Like They Live came out in 88, uh, but really Who Framed Roger Rabbit is its closest spiritual being in 88. Or even like, like I guess it could have, if it had been creepy, it could have gone with the Child's Play crowd. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's a much better movie than Child's Play, both kind of in creep factor um and you know child's play did set off a satanic panic in america but um yeah so i i don't quite know where i'm going with with, with that <laughs> but it was it was a smarter move to have it be a full comedy because a mm. full horror movies in america in the late 80s were kind of in between i don't think we'd had like the the new slasher flicks hadn't really started picking up steam and mm. and people could handle like surrealism. Like people were watching things like dirty rotten scoundrels where they could easily suspend their disbelief. Uh, yes. a full like horror movie type thing uh, for Beetlejuice. I, I think it would have been I think it would have been a very bad choice, it, especially with Tim at the helm. It would have likely made it a niche film. It wouldn't have it if it had gone that way, it wouldn't have had the popularity and staying power that we've seen today because by having it as more of a fantasy comedy that's accessible to families maybe not families with the youngest of children but certainly like um old like young teenagers older teenagers can enjoy watching it with their parents 
and get the humor and such in it. And because of that, it becomes more of the sort of film that you can watch um, like a normal time or even make it a Halloween classic for the family to enjoy. If they'd gone with the um, <laughs> more the more grotesque elements that you've mentioned, yeah. um, it likely wouldn't have had the sheer appeal that it does today. Yeah. And, um, and that doesn't fit with the Tim Burton. Like, even if you look at no, Tim no. Burton's uh, Willy Wonka film, which is not really yeah. a remake, it's more of a reimagining, he yes. really leans into, like, there's a sort of, I don't know how, it's like a candy-coated sinister element to Tim Burton's work. It's very road doll in a way. Beetlejuice is almost a road doll book put into film. It's very The Witches in mm. a lot of ways. And I really, I actually kind of love that about the Tim Burton brand because that candy-coated darkness you see a lot in Nightmare. You see it a yes. lot in Coraline. You see it a lot mm -hmm. even in the stuff that's in the spirit of Tim Burton, uh, not even necessarily stuff Tim Burton has touched. Um, yeah, it's surreal. It's bizarre. It's um, at times, yes, it's a little frightening or a little unusual and perhaps even mildly grotesque. But Tim Burton never goes out of his way to deliberately frighten his audience. Rather, he go he challenges um, the viewers with unusual and unique situations that are happening. And <laughs> and going back to Beetlejuice, I mean. A, a very unique situation of this young couple in the in the start of their idyllic lifestyle um, ending up dead and then having to navigate their basically their afterlife in their own home and dealing with uh, an unusual cast of characters taking over what they, they can rightly see as their property you know even though they've passed on um, <laughs> but as I say, Tim Burton never goes out of his way to scare his viewers. Rather, he challenges them with what he's uh, telling story-wise and aesthetically. Um, yeah. and, and this is, uh, so when we think about Tim Burton too, kind of setting the scene to talk deeper about the film, I want yes. to talk about Tim in terms of aesthetic, but in terms of being an auteur. Um, mm. And when you use the term auteur, what it means is that there is a signature style of, mm. of this person either as a director or writer. Uh, other auteurs you might have seen films for include uh, Wes Anderson, uh, mm. Danny Elfman as an orchestral auteur that we hear kind of a Danny Elfman song. You think, oh God, Danny Elfman. They made a joke about it on Family Guy, uh, but mm. they wish they could be as good as Danny Elfman is. Um, <laughs> I would almost say that Tim Burton is less Wes Anderson-y because I find Wes Anderson aesthetic kind of distracting. I feel like Tim Burton is much closer to like a Boz Lerman, where it's very distinct, but it's not so distracting that it gets in the way of the story. It doesn't feel twee, I guess, in a way. Like when I watch a Wes Anderson movie, I'm submitting to something. Whereas when I watch a Burton movie, it still feels accessible and dark yet joyful. And I think mm. that's something that is the reason people go back to Beetlejuice and go back to Nightmare. And even in my case, go back to the Willy Wonka film. Because um, I think it's so different from the Gene Wilder version that you can go back and watch it several times and it really depends on what you want. Uh, you could also think about Catherine O'Hara's favorite director, Christopher Guest, um, and his like mockumentaries as having their own kind of style. Um, mm. 
but I still think Tim Burton probably closer to say um, Baz Luhrmann than like a George Lucas or a Spielberg where it really is more about the story than the visualness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't feel like it distracts as much as like a Wes Anderson, except for like election, Wes Anderson movies are very distracting aesthetically. And I don't feel like I get that with Tim Burton. Like the aesthetic is packaged mm-hmm. with the story, especially here in Beetlejuice. Yes. Mm. It, the the aesthetic helps convey the story, particularly in Beetlejuice. Um, we could discuss maybe the aesthetics of the other films, perhaps in another podcast, because e- each uh, each um, Burton film has a unique we're, way. We're not doing like a two month Burton stretch, people. We're not no, doing no. another <laughs> Once Upon a Time. We've already done that. That's happened until until uh, I finally we... get Magnus to li- to watch Glee. We're not doing another long run thing for a while. Um, mm. I don't know if that's a threat or a promise, actually, but it kind of feels like both of those things at the same time. Uh, but I, I really, so with 88, Beetlejuice didn't have a contemporary. Batman hadn't happened yet. Adam's Family hadn't mm. happened yet. There really isn't another film. Like, you can look at other stuff happening in 88, but, like, there's not really a Princess Bride. There's not something that's so tongue-in-cheek. Beetlejuice feels like it kind of stands on its own in this list of movies people are watching in 88. Um, mm. which, is, which, yeah. which is an interesting thing to say, because when you think about it, it feels like all the Burton movies are so well linked to us to think you have Kiwi's Big Top, like two years before, Little Shop of Horrors in 86, mm. and then Beetlejuice. Uh, and it's just like it, Beetlejuice kind of exists on its own in 1988 in a lot of ways. Because um, nobody saw Grave of the Fireflies in '88 when it first came out. It's a fabulous movie, but it took a long time to get here. And Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I think, came out in a different portion of the year. So I don't know that they were like active competitors with each other. And to be honest, in all fairness, um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit is quite a different beast to um, Beetlejuice. Um, the major things they share is. Um, unique oddball situations and um, normal people having to deal with um, bizarre events and such. But when you have a look at them, they are quite different in themselves. You're right that Beetlejuice itself um, really is quite a unique thing. And even the decades after Beetlejuice, you can say there's other films that might cover some similar theming, but it's still quite a individual creation yeah. in right. Um, and I do struggle to think of some stuff that are remotely similar. In I the sense for, me, for me, the most similar would be by the time we get, so, so later down in the 90s, the only thing that is mm-hmm. a dark critique of a genre that is giving a wink and a nod instead of being an, out, an outright blatant critique. The only movie I can think of that comes close to Beetlejuice kind of in symbolism and enjoy and an oddity that people kind of have glommed onto as a cult film would mm. probably be Mystery Men. Um, but it's such a different genre mm-hmm. that it's so hard to be like, yes, this movie is like Beetlejuice in this year. Because yeah. it wasn't critiquing anything. It was just taking things that we think of kind of as horror tropes and turning it, it, it turns it into a carnival. It turns it into kind of this fun house ride of horrors but you're mm. but you're safe from the horror. Um, 
and then you get the product line with your Burger Kings. I think it was a Burger King product line because I don't <laughs> think McDonald's did the Beetlejuice, but there were there are still Beetlejuice toys that people look after. Um, like this, like this movie got hardcore promotion because it was just so different that like, what are you going to promote? Killer clowns in outer space? Like no one's going to buy toys for that. Uh, no. Beetlejuice is really what you've got because it's just yeah. I, there's something I really love about this film, and I, the only the only problem I have with this is that because the stage play makes uh, Catherine O'Hara's character her stepmom, they've gone back and they've retconned that into the film in a thing that's not even in the film because it's not ever brought up. And I like the idea of Catherine Catherine O'Hara's character being Lydia Dietz's like actual mom because i think that weirdness works like that really bothers me that they've retconned that into the film because it did not exist i've watched that film recently and it did not exist in the film until it was part of the stage musical so i'm not imagining this so um i went back as i mentioned i did some research before we had this podcast today and i was doing some rereading of the plot to refresh my memory and it mentioned the fact that she was um Lydia's stepmother and I reread that and I thought to myself I always got the impression that they were both her parents not that one was you know the biological parent and the other one was a step parent yeah, no, it got, so it got saying... retconned in because they made that oh. happen in the musical and so they retconned it in not to the animated cartoon tv show but into the film like they didn't add anything into the film there's no special edition extra thing where they talk about it it's just a thing from the 2016 musical that became part of the film and it makes me so angry because it's not necessary and it doesn't bring anything yeah what does it do it it, it means they can make a song happen uh in the in the uh because i think it's like the the context is it's like a song and the lydia deeds in the musical feels really like out of step with their family but the lydia deeds in the movie like relishes mm-hmm. being out of step with her mother who she's yes. so very clearly much like so like the the layer of oh her mother died it's like it it, oh. it just adds like a problem child level of things that you've already got enough going on you don't need and then it robs them of that uh gina davis alec baldwin as surrogate parents thing helping the family to come back together like i oh. feel like it does more damage than good and i have I gonna... issues with it I was going to say, I don't think I like that because there's a lot of people that will feel sometimes disconnected from their parents um, for various reasons. Like if they grow, might be during a period of their life when they're uh, growing up in, in a certain way or maturing or wherever some issues arise. And you don't often see um, a portrayal of a child at odds with both of their birth parents. And in a way having to deal with those issues like i feel it's t- it's too easy to make it one person into a step parent because it goes back to the traditional fairy tales of like oh it's a step parent that um that in, it's in a way an intruder into the family that the child doesn't connect with because it's not their biological child and i feel that oh, that's just Mm. And now I could be wrong. I have not read the actual script. So there could be either a deleted scene or like a stage direction where that is part of it. 
but for me it damages the film one because i think mm -hmm. the two parents are such strong character choices and lydia is so much like her mother like lydia yeah. eats I, like if you've only seen the animated cartoon or you've only seen the broadway stage show i cannot tell you how much work Catherine o'hara is if you think Catherine O'Hara in Home Alone is eating up every scene she's in, Catherine O'Hara in this movie going downhill with those giant eyes and that absurd sculptural like thing she's doing, <laughs> like I cannot express to you how much work Catherine O'Hara is doing in this movie and how much I absolutely adore her in this film as this mother who is not even trying like it's not a mom that feels disconnected from her daughter it's a mother who's just like it's like if uh natasha from uh from the parent trap remake had actually succeeded in marrying marrying the dad character it's just like she's just living her life and if the mm -hmm. kid gets on board that's great if the kid doesn't get on board she'll get out of the way like the dad does mm -hmm. and like the yeah. it because it, it, it's also not an angry like an angry mom like it, it's clear there is a spark of love between her and this kind of henpecked dad character it's not king of queens where leah remini is eating kevin's face off every day <laughs> uh, this is this is much more like a kind and gentle he's just bowled over by her like kind of absurd big personality and to make her a stepmom i think that sucks personally and if that's part of the original script it sucks and if it's an addition from the 2016 musical, it sucks mm. harder because that was that's an adaptation thing and it shouldn't be attributed yes. to the original. That, that's a really good point. And I was wondering about that. Why is it that an adaptation has any influence on the original source material? Um, when we've got plenty of adaptations, we were talking about Willy Wonka earlier for and that's had lots of different variations and such but you don't see them retroactively going back and adjusting the original story for any particular reason well, they did it because originally the oompa loompas were black so that did well, happen making them making them orange was a choice because they could i mean i'm not going to excuse it it's racist there's the, lots of issues with willy wonka i love the yes. film but it is problematic uh, but that is a discussion for another time. So it does happen, Indeed. but it doesn't happen retroactively. They have not released a version of the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory books <laughs> uh, where where the Oompa Loompas are not black. Like they've allowed that to happen. They allow the abuse and Matilda to happen. Like it, it's one of those things where like, why would you retroactively add this in? Like the movie is beloved on its own. I've never seen the yes. stage musical and I have no desire to see it because I don't think like, God bless Alex Brightman, and it's going to be a hot take, and I'm sure I'm going to get canceled for it. But the stage musical, the move, the the music kind of sounds like unnecessary nonsense, heart garbage, Broadway 2020 stuff. I don't think <laughs> it's going to last as long as people think it is, just because it's happening now. It's not nearly as important as something like Hamilton. It's not as good as Caroline or Change. It's not even as good as Avenue Q in my mind, and I'm sure I'm going to get canceled for that. Like, and I love Alex Brightman, so I'm not mad. I'm not mad at the actors, but like, I'm mad that they tried to influence the movie mm -hmm. it's based on. Like, that makes me angry, like, oh. as a person. Like, don't do it. So Lion King didn't do it. <laughs> Lion King didn't need to do it. Just stop. 
Oh, so I have so many emotions and feelings about that. I just I didn't even realize till I started feeling them out. So <laughs> it's all right, sir. I you've been taken back before in previous podcasts when I've had a strong opinion on something. Um, remember during our Sabrina episode how I felt towards what was her name? Val, I believe. Oh yeah, no, you hate mm-hmm. Val, but I mean that's oh, yeah. they they built a character that could never succeed because she was always second fiddle to a chaos machine. And so I can understand the dislike of Val. It'd be really, it would be really hard to be Sabrina's friend. Like Mm. it's hard in Chilling Adventures. It was hard then. Like it's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot that happens in Sabrina's life and it's unnecessary. So you mentioned Catherine O'Hara and um, that reminds me of a point I wanted to bring up. Um, Going back in my research and such, I was reminded about the fact that this film had quite a nice amount of the Hollywood elite in it. Um, there's quite a few veteran actors that star in different roles in this film, and they really do bring, I think the talent that all of these different people brought across really did help make it what it was. Um, and were, were they veterans then? Because this was Winona Ryder's second movie, and I know mm-hmm. Catherine O'Hara uh, had a lot of like Groundlings improv training, but I think mm. this was still relatively early. This is Michael Keaton's first time with Tim Burton. I think this was one of his first big roles. I feel like this movie set a lot of people's careers in motions that hadn't mm. necessarily been set in motion yet. Like this is a yeah. trajectory for Keaton, for Ryder, for Burton, maybe even for Catherine O'Hara, because she hadn't mm. done the Home Alone films yet. I don't even think she'd done any of her Christopher Guest movies at that point yet. I have done no research on Ooh. that. So I have no idea. So- so instead, this is the origin of a, a group origin of... story. It's everything you want for an. Or- <laughs> it's everything you want for an. Or- the only person to win an award out out of this uh, was the woman who played the bureaucratic desk jockey. Oh, uh, okay, um, the world, Sydney, something or other. She's the only person that won. Like it won for it won a horror movie award and won a couple of other things for like aesthetic. But the only person to win an award for this film. Um, I guess besides Tim Burton winning for best horror movie, um, is the is the lady who played the um, the um, yeah the caseworker. The caseworker. Sylvia um... Sylvia Sydney is her name. Uh, she won best supporting actress oh. for this movie, uh, which is kind of surprising. Gina Davis didn't win it, or Catherine O'Hara didn't. I don't know if it was like a thing where they were all um nominated and then she beat them all out all about like all about eve style but like uh yeah she know. was the the caseworker got a special award for this mm-hmm. so. so going back to aesthetic like something i wanted to touch upon um you'd mentioned previously about how the house itself is sort of like the main setting for Beetlejuice. Yeah, it's very uh, insulated. It's very James and yeah. Giant Peach where they live on top of this hill. Yes. And mm-hmm. there's a couple of scenes in the town, but 95% of this movie happens yes. in the rooms of this house, essentially. What's really interesting is Burton starts it off by the young couple. They've started their marriage, they're starting their life together, they're driving into town, they go into town and everything. Um, it sets up this very idyllic, bright, sunshiny sort of um American afternoon, um, and it's large, large open spaces because you see them driving in their car and such. And as you say, when it gets into the house, and the house, in a sense, becomes not just their home, but their prison for 
how many years was it 125 yeah something like that they have to they have to haunt it for 125 years and then yes. they get to cross over yeah. it's all in the handbook it's all yes. in the handbook it's of all the but by doing that it keeps it very much focused within that one set um yes you do get the image of the um sandworm dimension or whatever the hell it is yeah, um, that is it's based on saturn actually it's based on the deserts of saturn uh, originally the dimension for that uh, originally in the darker screenplay it was like this dimension of all like i don't know if they were dolly-esque but all of these like pieces of cloth and gears and so it had like this like metallic inorganic very like oppressive feel in my mind um and so this kind of new sandworm style thing didn't exist in the original script and I think Ooh. that's really cool the, the sandworm dimension is one of the things that makes this movie for mm. me because it's such an unexpected choice like this is the afterlife you know it's it's no. almost it's almost catholic in its like inception of this kind of ghost purgatory and I love it speak about unexpected I mean this is why I say that Beastruce is so subversive because it not just challenges um the American ideal in several ways um it, it kind of completely runs with it. So they go to, so the main couple go into the afterlife um, <laughs> administration district or whatever you want to call it. Uh, to meet the, the bureaucracy of death. Yes. Even in death, we can't escape bureaucracy. It, exactly. It's twisting it as well because uh, at the time, America was priding itself on being such an efficiently run country with like a great government, pristine departments and such. And then you find out that even in death, that carries on over and everyone is sorted and processed and it, it becomes very heavy if you really consider um, that. But it also keeps the aesthetic by keeping everything sort of like focused within internal spaces yeah. as but well. Even internal um, external spaces in the movie because mm. the entire time, uh, and this is a great way to introduce Beetlejuice too. If you think about the concept of internal external space in Beetlejuice, when you think about the model town that Alex Baldwin's character is building and how Beetlejuice perverts that and adds in yes. a bordello where there wasn't before and they have to like dig him up from this like cartoon graveyard thing. It's just this really great introduction to a character, but it's also mm -hmm. this idea of perfection and idealism that they keep trying to capture and it keeps failing. And like the, the center of their world because of this idyllic town is why Beetlejuice happens. Um, yes. Also because they're just terrible at scaring people. Uh, but yeah. that's just not something everyone can do naturally. While we talk about this house, it was interesting and iconic enough that even though this was labeled a comedy movie, Universal added it to their Halloween Horror Nights, which is supposed to be this ultimate expression of fear. And they added this into like a parade float warehouse um adjoined to like a kid zone so when they approach beetlejuice they approach it from not just the aesthetic but the idea that kids and horror aren't mutually exclusive mm -hmm. um which i really love like they go full in on it they've got like jump scares in this apparently uh juno who's the name of the caseworker is mm -hmm. one of the first scares you get um but it's like they keep that iconography of the checkered floorboard pattern uh they keep both of the wedding dresses both lydia's red and barbara's white wedding dress from when they're dying 
uh, because mm-hmm. Otto is performing an exorcism, not just a seance. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's this really cool thing of where Beetlejuice is almost, it's very page master and like it's a really great hybrid of different genres and it works. Um, page master comes a little later. It's not a 1980, uh, 1980s film by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I find it interesting that Halloween Horror Nights at Universal, which is kind of the archetype, which is known for these kind of scary over-the-top parties, they host people like Elvira until before Cassandra Peterson retired, they hosted Elvira. Um, now Knott's Berry Farm hosts Elvira, which is kind of its own weird idea to think about. Um, but they celebrated Beetlejuice, like of all of these iconic horror films and characters that Paramount could have chosen to do for like a kid's own secret third haunted house, they chose Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. This version of Beetlejuice, not Bianca Del Rio is Beetlejuice, not Alex Brightman is Beetlejuice. They chose <laughs> Michael Keaton, Tim Burton, Beetlejuice. Like they specifically chose this house, this film. And they chose to like take the idea of the house, but then only use the version of it, uh, really, except for the attic that they left intact. They chose that twisted Beetlejuice version where he had stretched the house and he had made it look mm-hmm. animated, made it look uh, not gothic, gothic's the wrong word for, it, but made it look like this like twisted yeah. version of it's it's almost like Peter Gabriel's sledgehammer video. It's hard to describe, like. When you see it in your mind, like, yes, that is a weird looking fireplace. What does it look like? You know, you think about kind of, I think there was like a tongue that came out of it that looked like the red carpet kind of thing. Mm. It's one of those things where it almost defies explanation. But when you see it in universe, it makes sense. Your brain just doesn't have the word for it. Mm. Indeed. Uh, To be honest, actually, when you mention how horror and kids aren't necessarily exclusive each other that makes me think of um goosebumps and their brand of storytelling in actuality um there's there is a world apart from uh beetlejuice the character and goosebumps but there's a certain um kinship in the sense of like um bizarre grotesque situations that um the kids get involved in with like these unusual creatures and situations happening to them whilst they're very much like you know young american kids um from normal well usually from normal families well lydia lydia is a lot like uh i think her name was lizzie from one day in horror land which is my favorite uh goosebumps Hmm. book and uh, lizzie was written like an adult thinks uh, like an older sister sounds like where she's just over it and I kind of love that because Lydia Dietz is both a kid, which they focus more on, on the cartoon, but mm. she's also got this incredible maturity level. And I'm not sure if Beetlejuice is attracted to it necessarily, or if he's just doing it because he knows he can heckle Barbara and I think Adam is Alec Baldwin's character name. Um, but like, it's never really explained other than being freed why he would want to marry Lydia. But also Lydia is this great character where she's, self-actualized like Wednesday Adams, but she's also mm-hmm. still a kid that doesn't really understand much, but has so much perception and empathy that she stands up to like everybody trying to rescue, uh, trying to rescue the two leads essentially. 
Because Adam and Barbara are main characters. I know Beetlejuice takes all the air out of the room, <laughs> but the actual ghosts that owned the house are actually really important to the plot. They don't just yeah. go away. They're there the entire mm-hmm. movie. You mentioned um, Wednesday Adams, and actually thinking about it, there is some, you know, if there's not too many similarities between Adams' family and Beetlejuice, they're at least on nodding terms in the same general vicinity. I think it's much closer uh, to Christina Ricci's character from Casper. Uh, The Mm. idea of alienation. I think Lydia Dietz and uh, Kat are are much closer than Lydia and Wednesday would be necessarily. Oh, sorry. I meant more in the context of the movies themselves and its general themes of sort of like otherness. otherness I I still think Casper. I still think Casper. I still think if you compared Adam's family versus Beetlejuice with Casper versus Beetlejuice. I still think uh, Harvey the Ghost Shrink would mm. would be much closer spiritually um, mm. okay. than whatever Gomez and Marticia have going on in any given day. <laughs> uh, but no, it's funny. I, I also I also don't want to I, I also don't want to let Jeffrey Jones off the hook. His dad, the kind of henpecked feared for your life, just holding on to the roller coaster dad. So perfect. <laughs> so much the antithesis of his Ferris Bueller henpecked principal character. Uh, but mm. just the way that he emoted in his face, the exhaustion he was feeling. Um, mm. But the way that he still accepts the ghosts at the end. I don't think people, I think people love this movie, but I don't know that people really dig into the message of it and how much it's about fan, family, and acceptance. Like, it's not just queerness. I know people are talking about the idea of queerness because we're talking a lot, especially in Twitter, about how Thor Love and Thunder succeeds and fails in different ways. But Mm. when you look at Beetlejuice, at the core of it, especially in that ending scene with that amazing Harabelli Fonte song, it's also about the idea of co-parenting. It's about the idea Mm -hmm. of what does it mean to live. It's about the idea of satisfaction. Uh, there's a really that that ending scene um, when you look at the way that the two couples interact before Lydia gets home and how they interact with each other even though they're in separate spaces there's something in that moment in that movie um, that that, that it's almost a perfect ending like I I don't know how else to like it wraps up the movie really well I can see why they made it into a cartoon but standing alone by itself the the Mm -hmm. film works and that ending showcases why it works because it's not a throwaway. There's no final jump scare. It's very witty. It's hilarious, but it's also it is spooky. There is a spookiness to the film. So. Yes, indeed. Um, no, I agree. Like when you think of different things from Beetlejuice, there's like certain scenes, of course, that stand out to you. Amazing um, dance music number during a dinner party. Um, the Which ending, originally uh, in in the dark in the in the dark script it was not a musical number. Everybody at the dinner party got like wrapped in vine chairs, so <laughs> like there was originally no Deo, which is such an iconic part of this movie. It boggles my mind to think that there's a draft of it where it does not exist. Um, dare I say it's probably the iconic element of the movie. It's certainly the thing that gets showed around at times, in which in turn piques people's interest to check this movie out and then find out like all the other great bits 
I also love that that's Barbara and Adam's version of scaring people is having them (laughs) sing Deo the banana song and be possessed that way. But like everyone at that table, like if you had read the room, that seemed like a table where that was a party. That didn't seem like a table where people were going to absolutely hate it. Um, I also love the 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 woman in here, the 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 woman they bring into the party, not Otho's assistant, but the but the woman and the couple. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yes. the mom from Richie Rich. So she would later go on to play that kind of <laughs> same optimistic, almost blank character in Richie Rich. And I absolutely love the continuity. I just I kind of want those two movies to just be connected like Beetlejuice and Richie Rich in this shared cinematic universe where she divorces and then has this like super rich kid. Like that's the continuity universe I'm looking for. Uh, Well, considering how Disney's going with all of its acquired Fox properties now, you might not have to hope and pray for long. (laughs) Beetlejuice is owned by Warner Brothers. It's not owned by Paramount. Paramount only owns Beavis and Butthead do America. They don't own any of the rest of the catalog, which I'm super grateful that Warner Brothers is safe, hopefully, from Disney consumption, because I do not need, like, they keep talking about Nightmare Before Christmas, the sequel, where it's, like, St. Patrick's Day focused, and I need that to never happen. Like, I would Mm -hmm. rather see Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian and see it literally jump the shark than I would want to see that. So, it's safe with the well, Warner Brothers as much as it can be safe with the studio. It's at least safe from the Disney grip for now. This is true. Oh, that's true. Oh, thank you for correcting me on that. Um, I do apologize. Sometimes it's hard to keep track of who owns what IP. No, like they own the Disney owns the Don Bluth catalog now. So they have access to things like Anastasia, which poor Don Bluth who rebelled against Disney and left the company to form his own company. And now all mm-hmm. his work is owned by Disney. And it makes me sad because they should not have rights to Fievel Goes West. Um, but I don't want to get off track because we were doing so good in talking about Beetlejuice. And yes. I want to be able to celebrate. Uh, I'd like to celebrate Gina Davis too, because she has kind of an amazing body of work. And this is one of the most amazing parts, uh, most amazing parts that I think she probably has. Uh, because it's it would be so easy for Barbara and Adam to fall flat as just this kind of doe-eyed, mm. optimistic farmer couple. But the more you get through the movie, the more you see their strength, especially with Barbara yes. and how she cares for Lydia. Uh, not to say that Catherine O'Hara doesn't care um, for Lydia, because it's obvious that she's not being neglectful, but there's something in the strength that Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin carry in their characters, it gets them through being the straight man types, where in other movies with lesser actors, they could have dissolved into nothing the second we saw Keaton on screen. And then it would Mm. have been a train wreck because you need them to be strong against Keaton's wackiness and they succeed. Yeah, Yeah, so you you need like a strong counterpoint to the chaos. That it brings into their lives because that is what Beetlejuice is um, in a nutshell. Um, they're allowing, they're bringing in an element of chaos into their lives to help solve a problem. But at the end of the day, <laughs> the chaos gets out of hand and actually starts to backfire on them and causes this massive situation, which thankfully gets resolved in the end of the day. And it's not to say that Beetlejuice is necessarily an antagonistic 
entity. I mean, no, he is. You can say antagonistic entity because I firmly believe, like, he's he's like he's like if uh, if Elon Musk never died and just became a zombie, because he's doing this thing for like capitalism and the thrill of making people cheesed off at him. And if that's not Elon Musk, I don't know what is. All hail the overlord. Elon Musk, totally different conversation point altogether. Um, I think we could have a lot to talk about Elon Musk, but that would probably be its own two-month podcast series. Oh, my God. No, thank you. I choose <laughs> um, I choose life, ironically. Um, so, with Adam and Barbara, um, a comparison that... I really hope I, his name is Adam. If I'm getting that wrong, I'm going to be so sad. Let me look at that. Okay, it is Adam. It's Adam it and is. Barbara. Barbara and Adam Maitland, and the name of the city they live in is Winter Rock, Winter River, Winter something. Very idyllic. Hmm. That's the point. Indeed. Hmm. Um, so a couple that they remind me about, um, and they rem- this is a comparison where there is some similarities, but there is a stark difference as well. Um, they remind me of Brad and Janet from Rocky Horror Picture Show in many ways, of an ordinary couple that gets swept up into this fantastical, um, out of this world situation, and then dealing with very unusual characters and such. Whereas, whereas, as you say, um, Adam and Barbara became a good counterweight to Beetlejuice. Um, I would dare say Brad and Janet, in the end, get swept up in like Frankfurter's madness. and. Although they try to, they can't escape the current that he creates until, well, the abrupt incident happens at the end of Rocky Horror Picture Show, I should say. Um, but it's what I find quite interesting is there are, there are two great examples of what is seen as the, dare I say, the stereotypical happy American Americana couple. Um, well, they are the poor Gina Davis. They dressed her in these sundresses that did nothing for her figure. <laughs> like, oh my God! Like that, and they gave her like this like steel magnolias perm, but it was like a bad version of a wig from that. Like, I know that was the style because we see it in the Power Rangers with Kimberly. So it's not like it wasn't the style, but it just it's unfortunate, and it was not it was not a flattering. Like at least they gave Alec Baldwin shirts that fit him. You know, kind of thing. Yes, <laughs> but it's great to see like a pair of characters that dare I say adjust to their environment when they when they go through this transition. Um, I would say that what they struggled with is the fact that no one actually came along and gave them any sort of instruction about being. Yeah, how do they call it? The newly deceased, the newly well, that's, the, that's how that's how bureaucracy works. They hand you a handbook yeah. and it's like, here you go. It's very Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy in some ways, because because uh, mm-hmm. the guy just gets thrown into this much larger universe and has to get on. But like by the end of the movie, Barbara comes riding in on a sandworm to devour Beetlejuice, um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like it's this amazing moment where like they're never they they're a lot more like a Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones's character of I think it's. Uh, the, the Dietzes, they're, they're more like these Dietzes, Charles Dietz, who's Jeffrey Jones's character, mm. um, and Delia Dietz, the self-proclaimed sculptor. I don't know why she's self-proclaimed. She sold enough sculpture that uh, <laughs> she could afford the house. I do not like this Wikipedia entry at all. 
it really <laughs> downplays Delia's abilities, but like they're not wimpy characters. They're at least on par with Charles and Delia, but they're they're almost like funhouse versions of each other. They're 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 mild, <laughs> but they're not like they they love each other very much. It seems like they probably have like they probably have a kinky bedroom um thing they just keep under wraps like it's like it's kinky for middle america but it's kinky it's kinky for connecticut which is not very kinky but it's as kinky as they're gonna get um and i think it's one of those things where this kind of shows how masterful tim burton is at making ordinary seem extraordinary because when everything else is extraordinary around you you need mm. something ordinary to ground you you actually need not the urgency of Beetlejuice having Lydia join him in marriage without her wanting to do it. You actually need the time crunch of Adam and Barbara, these two kind of white hat ghost characters, literally mm. dissolving and zombifying in a way where, because the audience doesn't know if this goes through all the way, if they'll survive or not. Because it's mm. never said that if you exercise, like there's no concept of like what is beyond the sandworm, like if that yeah. bureaucracy is hell or purgatory or what. And so like the time clock of Lydia being forced into marriage isn't the important thing in that scene mm. in that climactic battle. It's no. Adam and Barbara are going to like officially, physically, in a way that looks beyond horrifying, die. Mm. And, and it's like the marriage is bad, but Lydia is going to live outside of the marriage. It won't be great, but like there's always loopholes to marriage. It's a whole thing where like the movie is so dependent on these straight characters in the middle of this wackiness mm. that it's such a good balance and it only really works with Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. Yeah. Um, and I would argue it really only works with Winona Ryder as Lydia Dietz. I, I'm not sure any other, because a whole bunch of people like Sarah Jessica Parker was up for the role, which is really hard to imagine. Uh, like mm -hmm. casting, casting Lydia Dietz was this big production. And like all of the people around Winona Ryder's age were all um buying for this role it was it was a big thing in the development uh jennifer connelly juliet lewis molly ringwald justine bateman diane lane Lori laughlin who would go on to uh play in full house brooke shields they all auditioned uh Alyssa milano was the second choice but like mm -hmm. can you imagine Ooh, anyone playing lydia deets other than that period in time winona Ryder? like i can't mm -hmm. imagine like yeah. my mind just can't picture another person no indeed but what age was lydia meant to be was she meant to be um so she meant to be in high school so like hmm. so so the kids in the craft are probably 17 18 so yeah. she's meant probably so in the cartoon they kind of age her down to about junior high era which makes hmm. the beetlejuice lydia friendship a little weirder uh but i feel like she's supposed to be like maybe sophomore year so like 15 16 growing into her womanhood uh yeah. not in the flowers in the attic sort of way but in the idea where kind of beetlejuice wouldn't have an issue with this marriage because it's not about whether he sexualizes her or not it's mm. about this marriage gets him out of whatever purgatory heck he's living in yeah. um 
fact. But it's, mm. it's yeah, Winona Ryder is a great age. It's something that a demographic yeah. can latch on to. It's yes. almost Saint Elmo's fire, but not quite. Um, it's it's really that age. It's it's very much the same as Cat from Casper, where it's at that great age where it can be idealized, but she can mm. also be an outcast with a heart of gold. It, it works in a very Julia Roberts, pretty woman, my best friend's wedding sort of way. Yeah, in, indeed. I said so many words there. So many words <laughs> is how many words that I said. Oh, Oof. indeed. But I mean, it's clear that you have a great passion for this movie and you have some great, you've been bringing across a lot of great points. So yeah, I, uh, I mean, even Otho as the queer, I don't know if he's openly queer, but he's at least queer quoted the, the Otho character who steals the handbook and is like, this is the idea we should do. And yeah. you can see the money in his eyes. Even Otho, like, he's the bad guy of the film, but he's not the bad guy because Beetlejuice is the actual villain. But, like, he's a well-structured D-tier villain. Even if you don't yes. know all of his motivations and all of his backstory, mm -hmm. it really works. Like, Otho, Glenn, Glenn Shaddix doesn't do heavy lifting, but he doesn't have to. Um, it, it works. Mm -hmm. It really does. Speaking about... Um motivations and such oh glenn shaddix was also the mayor in the nightmare before christmas he voiced the mayor uh so there is a connection nightmare between the two sorry i had to say that before i forgot it because <gasps> oh no no it's quite all right sir we um so what i was going to say motivation wise something that's always really stayed with me from this movie was my surprise that so after the um incredible um dancing number scene at the at the dinner table and the expectation that the party is going to run out screaming into the night um the fact that they turn around and start to envision it almost like an attraction um you know oh my god we got a real haunting we got real ghosts here and such this is gonna make america sort of thing that has always really stuck with me um as a thing and i've just I just love it. The the fact that I could still be surprised, shall we say, after watching so many movies is just a great thing in itself. Yeah, I love that. That's a really great so the whole the whole scene is really great in that moment because before that scene, it was the first time Lydia encounters them. If I'm remembering the order of events correctly. So yes. Adam and Barbara are like, we're gonna wear sheets, we're gonna be like classic ghosts, because they haven't seen us yet. They've been trying all these things that haven't worked. They're like, we're going to put these bed sheets on over our heads. And so Lydia takes a picture of the bed sheets thinking hilarious and then realizes there are no feet. She starts talking to them. She's not at this dinner party, but she uh, observes what happens from the yes. stairs. And so Lydia in this way is observing things with these ghosts and they're celebrating. And then she's just like, so that didn't work. Are you are y'all okay? And she just—it's it, this really great. It's it's a really great change to the dynamic where it could have easily been like Lydia's. Let, Lydia could have gone into that "let me worship you" headspace because I'm so into death. Like it could have gone way too morbid, and it didn't. Like there's such a curiousness and a naivete, and and an empathy there, and you juxtapose that with what's happening downstairs where they're like the American dream is money, so let's make an attraction out of this. And it works. Yeah. <laughs> oh, indeed. And I mean, speaking about something else, like um, just going back to a, a point about um, Beetlejuice and such, 
um, we mentioned before about um, him getting eaten by the sandworm. The fact that he ends up back in the bureaucracy waiting room, ready to be processed, in a sense, ending back up in his own eternal punishment by being sent back there, is that that is part of the ending that really works well for me. And really does confirm like, um, you know, the red tape is like perhaps one of the most horrifying elements of this whole film. <laughs> and it works better too, because we already know at the point where he's eaten, he's afraid of the sandworm. Yes. Never explained why he's afraid of them. Um, but he's afraid of the sandworm. He knows they exist. So at some point he met them somewhere. Um, and it, it's, it's really cool that Barbara is the one to take him out because mm. I think she's probably most disgusted by his actions. And she's the yeah. one that fights hardest to try to get rid of him after they realize the mistake of bringing him into the world. But it's like the, the poetic justice of getting eaten by the thing that you fear most when you're the thing that everybody else fears most. Um, mm. Also, the, the the costume that Beetlejuice has, both his groom outfit and that classic black and white stripe thing yes. that we see at Halloween all the time with the green hair. I, I just, in 1988, the only other thing that existed like that were slasher movies from the early 80s that were out of vogue. We hadn't had, I know what you did last summer, we hadn't had Scream. We didn't have iconic slasher outfits yet. We were in mm. between them. And so this Beetlejuice, the celebration, the kind of carnival, ghost, clown, ghoulish realness that now gets celebrated by, like, say, Bianca Del Rio as a drag performance thing, something you see on the Boulay Brothers' Dragula as mm. kind of a wink and nod to what, quote-unquote, true horror is. Like, I cannot stress enough in 88, the iconography of what Beetlejuice did didn't really exist. Like, you have, like, the witches, you had Angelica Houston taken off her head in The Witches, but that was mm. gruesome and violent. This was like playful violence. This was something you could safely see in a haunted house. Um, yes. And you'd pee yourself, but like you knew what you were getting in the haunted house. Uh, <laughs> they, they did not try to fool anyone with the promo for this movie. Like the theatrical release trailers were not fooling people. Um, it, it did what it said on the tin. And I just when we talk about authorship and we talk about iconography, we use all these fancy words to talk about moments and things that matter and that come up again for us time and time. There is something about Beetlejuice as this character that comes up for people again. And for some people, it's that playfulness. For some people, it's that grotesqueness. But for some people, it's that vulnerability of, I want to get out of hell and I'm willing to marry someone to do it and I'm gonna make a joke about it. But like there's something in the vulnerability underneath that bravado of Beetlejuice that works and you see in things like Dungeons and Dragons all the time now. So mm. it's Beetlejuice, get into it, you know? Yeah. Exactly, it, it was, a, you can see why it became a cult classic that to this day is not just enjoyed, it's also passed on to, um, other you know, the people that watched it to fr uh, friends and the younger generation and such um and, it, and it's aged well it has not yeah. like with age it is not some of the movies that we loved as kids like land before time like you can watch them again and you're like oh these values are like not <laughs> the production values are like oh man my parents really sat me down in front of this this is 
but like when you yeah. when you see Beetlejuice, like it it it's not timeless because it is a product of the late '80s. Like things mm. are in the capsule, but it doesn't feel so far from where we are presently. The idea of an idyllic town is still here. The idea of a haunted house is still here. Like you can go directly from Beetlejuice to the live action Scooby Doo movie with no problem because there's a timelessness to it that really works. Also, I love the Scooby-Doo live action movie. I think it's fantastic. I think it's a celebration and I hope we talk about it one day. Hmm. We very much could, sir. Um, I'm willing I'm willing to do that. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, my, I suppose a clo- uh, maybe we should get to our closing remarks now for Beetlejuice. So do you have some more um, topic points that you want to bring up? Um, I always have more topics, but we have about 10 minutes left on this episode, I think. So it's, I think there's something really great about Beetlejuice because I know when we talked about, um, whatever we talked about last time, we talked about Once Upon a Time, when they soft rebooted it, they made it kind of about class warfare. And I think in Beetlejuice, the thing that doesn't get in the way is the idea of class. Adam and Barbara never want Charles, Dilly, and Lydia out of the house because they're going uh, because they have a lot of money they're doing it because they're destroying something precious without knowing they're doing it so it's Mm. a very subtle thing about class it's never because they're from the big city it's not like MAGA redneck related it's the idea of what does something mean to us and what does it mean to us to keep things the way it is without it's, it's very steel magnolias in that way of what does status quo mean um, and I think that's something that when you watch it, it's easy to critique that as not being there. But in the 80s, movies like Money Pit existed. So it wasn't, movies weren't making movies about that. And I think the only movie that comes close to the idea of class and power um, in this vein from anywhere in this period maybe is big. And that's kind of a stretch, even saying it. So, like, there's so much, there's layers to this movie that are really good. But at the end of the day, it's a beautiful, grotesque, silly horror film for people of all ages. Mm. Also, Winona Ryder is amazing. That's why she was in Stranger <laughs> Things and Girl Interrupted. Like, of course, David Harbour had a crush on her. I'm gay and I had a crush on her. So, mm-hmm. uh, I also the... want David Harbour, but you know what? Da- David Harbour can do that. <laughs> Indeed. Hmm. I'm not sure I could add much more to what um, you've just said, sir. Um, I think you've summed up what the movie is like beautifully. Um, so I'm happy to close off my points there. Do you, do you have do you have more points? I don't think I have anything else, to be honest, at the second. I could rummage something up from my vast library of little references and what have you if needs be. Here's a question. What do you think is in the handbook of the recently deceased? Because it is a book and we see yeah. a cover and we see a little bit of what it is. But what other things do you think are in the handbook? Like, do you think uh, the characters from the animated series are in this handbook? Do you think it's like the handbook from Sabrina where there's like dead dads giving instruction in it? Like, what do you think is in this like handbook that that Juno is just so obviously giving out uh, willy nilly without instruction? (laughs) Well, I presume it starts with something like, hi there. So you're a part of the newly dead. Uh, It's a shame, I know. But this is the afterlife, and these are the basic pointers that you're going to have to learn. We'll go into more depth in future chapters about how to deal with such inconveniences as going through walls, not being able to escape sandworms, etc. 
but that's for the future. I can see it very much as a very tongue-in-cheek manual. Um, yeah. It's very Hitchhiker's Guide, which it, is great. Very, yeah, very much aping um, like your classical like instruction manual and what have you. Um, if you think about it, it's from a very dry, um, undead bureaucracy, so it's not good, probably going to have many jokes in it. Um, but I suppose one last point I would make is the fact is, we mentioned before that Beetlejuice um, obviously met Sam Worms before in the past, that there's a lot more background and lore to this universe than what we're told. Um, and you could very much go into more depth about it. But Beetlejuice as a product, as a film, as a piece of art, it's sort of like it's perfect in the amount of information it does give you. Um, just as, you know, you there's all this information in the world that you could spend your lifetime and more finding out about, not all of it is relevant or very useful um, to you. Um, but by just giving us sort of like what really matters in the film, um, it, it satisfies your knowledge about what this universe is, about what this film is about, but still leaves the door open for more discovery. Um, but I think it's perfect in the way it was. So, I mean, I know that they're making the sequel and that Ryder and Keaton are on board with it to come back for it. Um, I don't know how that's going to go. <laughs> but I think, I think Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian could easily be really good or really bad, but mm. we have all this other Beetlejuice architecture. It's not coming on the heels of it. This isn't like Goonies, and then they made Goonies do right after it finished, you know? Mm. Um, yeah. I think Beetle, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian tells you everything you need to know. It's a movie not to be taken seriously kind of thing. Um, I think the classic Beetlejuice when you think about Tim Burton movies, I know when you think Burton, a lot of people think Edward Scissorhands. Um, mm. But I think Beetlejuice, especially after Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is a great movie if you've never seen it. Mm. Um, there's something remarkable about Tim Burton's body of work in that it is a little bit like my work in which there's nostalgia but it's not so mm -hmm. aching for the past that it can't deal with the present. And you see it especially, there's lots of nostalgia in this film, but at the end of the movie, they're remodeling the house to fit five people instead of two. Yeah. So like, it's not nostalgia that lingers so hard that it can't turn into something. And I like this movie doesn't dwell on the idea of perfection, but it doesn't shy away from it. It doesn't yeah. shy away from this attic with this weird little model city in it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 about as perfect as a almost I want to call it. It's not a kids movie. It's not really a, like adults like it, but I feel like Beetlejuice is the perfect teen movie because there's mm. a little bit of grossness, but it's not Idle Hands, and it's not so into sex that it feels like live action Scooby Doo. It feels like no. Beetlejuice is that perfect transition movie from something fantastical like Alice in Wonderland into uh, a harder body of work like Edward Scissorhands. I feel like it's a perfect transition piece for a teenager almost. Yes. It, you mentioned nostalgia and such. Um, 
we've talked about the fact that Beetlejuice has been passed down now to new generations and people are still discovering it and watching it. Um, I think it's a great look at a film from that period that's not dated, but instead gives you the perfect look into how, how a film like Beetlejuice was made during then and the themes and such. I think it's going to have longevity like other things that we discussed before, um, like the Golden Girls, um, like various other series and such that we touched upon. Um, I think it's going to still stay around. And I think it's definitely going to be a movie from that period that people keep revisiting, not just for the quality of it, not just for the story, but also, yeah, to take a nostalgic trip down and see what a film from that generation was like. Also, it's just fun. I think we don't yeah. talk about it enough, but it's okay to have fun with your films. It doesn't all have to be serious. Um, oh, no. And for you, our listeners, as we wrap up, I'd love to know, is this a year-round film for you? Is this just like a Halloween kickoff film? Have you ever built your home, a haunted house, around this film like they did Halloween Horror Nights? Uh, feel free to let us know. We have our archives on YouTube. We've got, of course, our podcast on Anchor, and we have uh, Twitters and Instagrams. And it's really cool to get to talk about something and celebrate something and not just be critical of it. And to not have to do it in four episodes. Um, <laughs> it was a lot. And I want to thank everyone who hung in there with us for that for once upon a time. Yes. Uh, Beetlejuice is a lot of fun. And I hope that you have movies like that for you. It's not Beetlejuice if your fun and irreverence comes from Hook or comes from Princess Bride or comes mm -hmm. from, even if you've seen the movie Camp um, or But I'm a Cheerleader, like have fun with your cinema. Life is short, have a good time. And speaking of which, we're gonna go off and have more good times on our own and we'll see you the next time on Everything is Gay, even the straight stuff. Have a great it's evening, awesome. everyone. Ta-da for now. Ta-da for now.